0: Sarah Baker is going to read our scripture today. It comes from the lectionary reading from Matthew 15.
1: From there, Jesus went to the regions. Oh no, sorry. Regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, "Show me mercy, Son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession." But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed.
0: So, this is one of those passages which is both frustrating and intimidating. I think that's okay to say. Uh, it's also a bit of like a Rorschach test for what you're coming to the table with uh, about Jesus. Oftentimes those predisposed to look at Christian faith and the Bible in more skeptical terms, either from outside of the eyes of faith or f- from faith that might have been hurt by abuse, uh, might immediately hone in on some of the problems and central tensions here. Namely, is Jesus being racist or misogynist? Like That's the question or readers of faith might equally be inclined to rush to Jesus's defense right away, smoothing over some of the cringy things that are happening and jumping either to the conclusion, no way is Jesus being racist or misogynist, or so what Jesus is being racist or misogynist, right? But I wonder if there's a way to read this that takes these complaints seriously but also helps us to understand the good news of what's going on for the Canaanite woman in the good news for us more than 2000 years later. I wonder what's really going on here. First, a bit of context. Our scene doesn't just pop down out of thin air, but it's part of the story that Matthew is reporting about Jesus and his mission. When I was in college, I took a New Testament class long before I knew that I was called to ministry. And somewhere in that Bible, I think I still have that Bible of that semester, somewhere scrolled in pencil at the beginning of each gospel chapter is a cue for what I thought or what our professor thought was going on in each gospel. So like the gospel of Mark was like the apocalyptic gospel. It's punchy and intense, Like the original Greek is dotted with and this happened and this happened and this happened immediately, immediately go, go, go. Uh, John's gospel was like the quote cosmic gospel. It started with a kind of a trippy retelling of creation in the beginning was the word and the word was with God um, rather than like the kind of drier public record of the genealogies. And then there were Luke and Matthew and Luke and Matthew were kind of always kind of uh, uh, two mirror perspectives. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. That's why it's important to hand copy these things because we, we often skip over all the begat, begat, begats. But those begats, if you pay attention to them, tell a little bit of a story. Luke's gospel starts all the way with Adam and it speaks to the whole world. So it's surely, at least in my freshman year in college terms, the universal gospel while Matthew seems to be more of a Jewish gospel. The genealogy starts at Abraham and it meticulously like footnotes all of the allusions and the places where the words of the prophets were being fulfilled in the life and words and work of Jesus, the long awaited Messiah of the Jews. So sometimes these headings can be a little overly simplistic, but I think they're still kind of helpful for, for helping us frame um, what's going on on the whole and how the writer's aims and audiences are kind of shaded differently. We need these four angles to help us see and know the depth of who Jesus is and the richness of the good news. So here in this Jewish gospel, Jesus's mission starts with the Jews, starts to the Jews and with the Jews, but the outreach movement towards the Gentiles, those who are not called part of God's family is starting to pick up steam. He's already recognized the, the like doubly sur- surprising faith of the Centurion a few chapters back it's doubly surprising because his Centurion was a Roman so not a Jew and was like a member of the occupying military so so but this Centurion has faith we even sang of it today and this is starting to cause increasing tension and discord with the Jewish religious establishment characters. It seems that there is a great expectation if Jesus is actually this Messiah they think he is. The expectation for this Messiah would be that the Messiah would be the one who would gather and defend and make Israel great again to spend much energy outside of that aim, outside of those who saw themselves as the people of God would not only be a waste of time, but it would be kind of a, a betrayal. From the beginning though, Israel's whole formation and vocation, their calling, God's message to Abraham and Sarah was that God's people would be blessed to be a blessing. And that as Israel goes so would the whole world go. And that calling, that vocation was now being bottlenecked, closed off and mutated into some kind of nationalism. That especially this kind of nationalism when pressed by Roman rule made empathy for outsiders, for Gentiles seem like being some sort of race traitor, right? This was certainly a minefield for any would-be messiah to be stepping in. Most who saw themselves as, as messiahs, and there were plenty in the first couple centuries uh, before Christ, most of those revolutionaries kind of stuck to the revolutionary script, and they were promptly put down by powerful Romans. So this is the backdrop of the healing story. One of... Matthew's 14 healing stories. Following the feeding of the 5,000 plus, following Peter's walking on water, and following a tense encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus has detoured to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, which is really off the beaten path for a good Jewish boy. He's really, really out of bounds for someone looking to stick with what he'd known and to be around people he'd be comfortable with. And when he and his friends are there, he's approached by a Canaanite woman asking for help. Not many bells go off for us or flags are raised in this moment, but any early reader of this, especially a Jewish reader would have seen it immediately. This is the only time the word Canaanite appears in the whole New Testament. When Mark tells this, a parallel version of this story, he calls this woman a Syro-Phoenician woman. The difference of the two is pretty significant. Maybe it's something as mild as knowing how to name someone correctly. Like, like for us, it's like post-Cold War uh, nationalities specifically um, uh, versus calling someone Soviet or from the USSR. Like maybe that's what's going on. That would be like something mild that's happening. Or maybe it's something more serious. After all, Residents of Cana, the Canaan promised land given to the Israelites were supposed to be erased. Deuteronomy seven says that extermination was the order. Make no treaty, show no mercy. To mark her as a Canaanite woman was to use like antebellum language to dredge up and Emphasize old animosities and old barriers between Jew and non-Jew. What if this was on purpose? Canaanite had baggage. Canaanite was like a, a slur of sorts. Nothing good could come from Cana. Well, except for, you know, if you're paying attention to Matthew's genealogy, like three members of Jesus's family tree, like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth all Gentiles, all from the Canaanite diaspora, all woven into the emerging story of the Messiah. You see how complicated this all is. So this woman enters in unnamed, we never get her name, but she's she's already at the outset kind of poisoned by this moniker. And she shows up asking for mercy from the son of David for her possessed daughter, who is likely probably seizing and foaming at the mouth on the verge of death. A Canaanite woman asking for help from the son of David is in a sense asking him to break the rules, asking and expecting him to be more than his ancestors had been for her at that moment. But Jesus seemingly ignores her.
1: What? What?
0: does that silence mean? Is he straight up ignoring her? Is he like gathering compassion for her? Is he trying to understand what he's supposed to do? Is he putting the question to his followers around him? Is he just simply giving her airspace? It's good to ask these questions when we don't feel like we really know what's going on. Jesus seems somehow to be like pumping air into a really tense situation. His buddies can't stand it, can't stand these moments of tension and ask him to send her away so she'll stop making such a racket. The word send her away is like, uh, not really dismiss, but it's more like free her to go, Uh, give her what she wants. Deal with her so we won't have to. And Jesus replies, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. She responds, calling him Lord. We remember from last week, Peter called him Lord. Peter, the the Jew, the rock on whom the church would be built, calls him Lord. Other characters around the story, mostly Pharisees, call Jesus teacher, but she calls him Lord because she needs his power in this urgent moment of need. She's not privileged enough in this moment for a simple wise word or a lesson that she could take or leave, like the Pharisees. She needs help. Her Lord, help me is similar to. Peter sinking, Lord, save me. The, the main difference is just that Peter's cry came from Jewish lips. I wonder if there's a bit of irony here for Jesus. In saying that he's primarily focused on the lost sheep of Israel, that his mission is like an like an inside-out mission, I've often felt this kind of irony for our mission here in Lakewood with Oak Church. As I often tell kind of the story of Oak Church to new people, we've had a place before we had a church, before we had a people, before we had a plan, we had a place to be. And a mission that flows kind of concentrically outward from the steps of the church. Uh, If you look at the Oak Church logo, it looks just like a, a. cross-cut log, and it is, but that star in the middle is actually, if you drop it on a Google map, it it falls exactly on the five points that Oak Church sits, and then those rings are meant to be kind of the concentric outward circles. Uh, There's, the, the doing ministry like this is predicated on the assumption that there's more than enough life and gifts and potential and need, just like in a square mile radius, that if we, if, we, if we dedicated and devoted ourselves, it would occupy our gospel attentions and imaginations for the rest of our lives if we wanted to, just that small amount of space, just that, that small amount of people. But what about outside of that perimeter? Are they, are, are you not part of that ministry or mission? As Paul would say, By no means, right? Rather, this, our sort of, our focus, if we're doing it right, allows us to, to come closer, to be more proximate to the suffering heart of the whole world, wherever we go. By focusing on Lakewood and West End and the cluster of neighborhoods around We might be a sign and a symbol and a foretaste of the kingdom of God where we are. We might be more and more responsive to God's movement and the cries of the poor wherever we're sent, either during our time in Durham or if we're leaving Durham, we we might learn ministry in this small place for wherever we're going. Our local and our specific focus makes us more equipped to love generously and globally. We love in a place, so then we can love in every place. So when Jesus says that he's come to love the lost sheep of Israel, he's neither lying nor excluding the woman. I think he's actually expanding the very concept of who Israel is and might be, and who has been lost and left out of God's family. He is like reforming, reconstituting Israel around his very body, like metal filings on a magnet, pulling in all of those who might call him Lord. The last kind of hard pill to swallow is when he calls This Canaanite woman, even just indirectly, he calls her a dog. I don't know if you caught that. I'll leave it up to you whether Jesus was being sarcastic or playful or stuck in his own cultural assumptions when he says it. But any way you cut it, she seems not to skip a beat. And she calls him Lord for a third time. I'm probably dating myself, but I I think of Beetlejuice when people say things three times that something wild is gonna happen, right? And, And she, when she calls him Lord for a third time, she insists that even the dogs, the way it's written makes us think more of like household puppies, not feral like alleyway beasts, but even the pups get to eat. Even the pups get to eat. In the Book of Common Prayer, there's a prayer ahead of communion. We'll gather for this meal in a moment. And this prayer is called the Prayer for Humble Access. And it borrows from this instance and from a couple other instances, the centurion's request. And, and, <clears throat> and when you gather to receive from Christ's body and blood and remembrance, This is what you pray when you pray the the prayer of humble access. It says, we do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and him in us. Amen. It is this persistent prayer for humble access that cracks open the story. Jesus responds, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish, and right away, her daughter was healed. Jesus here is our, is our guide for what it means to have our eyes fixed on our immediate concern, like our work, our families, those closest to us, those, the things most under our authority and in our heart we can have our focus on those things, we can be excellent and attend to those things while being able to be interrupted and to hear and to see and to become intimately concerned with those who are outside and different and distant from us. I think this is some of what Jesus is showing us. That there's, that there's no neglect to the heart of the matter when, when we're interrupted and we, ha- we are awakened to uh, hurting elsewhere. Jesus models intimacy for the other. First, this happens even just when Jesus is born in the incarnation. First, as God become human, he bears in his own body concern for something and some ones who are unlike him. But as early Christians fought out in the councils, there's no division in Jesus. There's not a 50-50 split of human and divine. There's no God Jesus doing all the miraculous divine stuff and no human Jesus being weak and tired. And this is good news for us because it means as we grow in Christ by the spirit, neither are we content to be split between sinful bodies and godly spirits. Jesus knows us when we're other than him so that we can know him as He's other than us and become more and more united with Christ. That we can grow in our desire for God to renew and to recreate all of us, to call and equip every part of us, to become whole people, participating in God's shalom, peace and wholeness, to become more like Christ. And Jesus continues to model this intimacy for others in his life. In stories like this one with the woman who by virtue of stage directions was already framed as Jesus' enemy from the start. And before you cancel Jesus for being slow to hear and to heal, consider the ways that you and I have been slow to hear and to heal. That we've been quick to think that someone different from us is acting in kind of bad faith. When they say something that doesn't jibe with our conception of who we are and how we think the world's working. But Jesus's movement, his kind of character arc and just these few lines of the story is good news for us. Because it means that even when we are slow to recognize and join in, there is still time and room for intimacy. For empathy. There's still a possibility to be blessed and inspired by the great faith of others who we didn't originally understand or call good, or even faith. <laughs> and Jesus models this kind of intimacy kind of ultimately on the cross. Outside the city gates, lynched between two thieves, while those closest to him fled, while those religious insiders pulled the strings to have him silenced and killed. And while the political apparatus was intent on ignoring him and moving on, Jesus was coming close to anyone who suffers. Jesus was absorbing the sinful cause of that suffering on his own body and not putting it back into circulation. The scripture tells us that Jesus was making a mockery of the powers and principalities, which sought to mock and erase him. And three days later, he was vindicated for it. Raised by God's spirit with the, with the marks of his suffering still and always on his hands, his feet and his side. These scars are the most beautiful artifact ever. They're monuments to God's, Dividing, wall-crushing love. They're reminders that God enters into sorrow and pain and despair and brings about praise and joy and hope. But Jesus isn't our only model, not even in this story. The Canaanite woman is also our model. She shows us how to approach God in Christ, not presuming that we're central or on the inside of God's plans, but also not presuming that we aren't or can't be. She is desperately, persistently, courageously, yet humbly praying for access to crumbs and scraps, which we know to be Christ's body and blood we know to be enough to be more than enough to heal us and to make us whole and to heal those around us. Can we pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this strange and hard story. Um, We thank you that it um, stops us in our tracks and um, begs that we ask questions. We thank you for the ways that it opens up possibilities for us to grow and change, to repent and to heal, to be a part of your work in this world. Lord, where we're hurting, um, heal us. Where we're causing hurt, disarm us. Where we need to cry out to you and give us voices that say, Lord, save us. We thank you uh, for all these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.